You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's story. One of a Marine who was in the invasion of Iraq and then turned his life to God, becoming a pastor and working with veterans on resiliency and so much more. We'll get to that in just a moment. But as always, our normal announcements. Please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Of course, uh, make sure you guys uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Give a thumbs up and a like to the content there. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews as they continue to grow the show. Help us get bigger and bigger uh, and let more people know about the Hazard Ground. Of course, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. It is... Uh, on our website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button on the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Uh, we'll get a percentage of whatever you guys spend after you do your normal Amazon shopping. Then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. And just a quick side note, uh, if you've been trying to email the show or have been trying to get in touch with us through the website, um, we have had some email issues. I think I've corrected them. I am not the tech guy. Um, but as well, if you need to, if the website isn't working, you could just email us at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com as well. Um, but also producer at hazardground.com where you guys can send in so many guest suggestions uh, and information on the website. If you've done that in the last couple of weeks, please resubmit to us. Uh, I don't mind the extra additional mail or, or, or check-ins with us. But again, um, I think I fixed the, the website stuff and, and the email, but either producer at hazardground.com or hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. So, now that we've gotten all the technical issues out of the way, let's get to this week's guest, who spent eight years in the Marine Corps and was part of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, crossing the berm. And then after his time in the service, well, during his time in the service, but afterwards, transitioned to life as being a pastor. He has written, 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 written. He has written two books, well, actually a total of five, but his two biggest books are called March or Die and Leadership by Design. And he's also the co-founder of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, which is an organization that is dedicated to helping veterans, active duty, and first responders uh, through peer-based disciplineship and a series of programs helping the resiliency and trauma. He is Jeremy Stallnecker joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jeremy, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Mark. Looking forward to the conversation. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, I failed to mention, I should have mentioned at the top, uh, for your service, you were awarded the Veteran Navy Commendation Medal with V for Valor. Uh, and obviously, this happens during uh, the invasion, uh, which is always an incredible story. You know, it's yeah. amazing how many pieces went into the invasion of Iraq. And every time I talk to somebody, it's like, there's a little nugget, there's a little right. sort of <laughs> right. wrinkle that I didn't realize was going on. And, and inevitably, during the show, whenever I'm talking to somebody, I'll pull up the map of the invasion and see where they were and everything else and how it all falls together. And you know, it's just a absolutely crazy time. But before we get to that, uh, get us back to the beginning, because you and I were both commissioned into the military the same year back in 1999. So how'd you get Very in? Nice. Uh, yeah, so that was kind of a long story, I guess. Uh, I was raised in a Christian home. My dad is a pastor. And as you mentioned, I eventually went into the ministry. But uh, growing up in a pastor's home, I knew that was not what I wanted to do. That was absolutely not where I wanted to end up. Um, I was thankful for my parents and what they did. I wasn't running from God. But uh, watching people in ministry, particularly church ministry, knew that's not what I wanted. So I remember talking to my dad when I was a teenager, hey, would you be okay if I didn't go into ministry like you and you know our family? And he said, son, do whatever God wants you to do. I said, I think God wants me to go in the Marine Corps. He said, God does not want you to go 
there's got to be something else. Um, but that really started a journey for me, uh, a very patriotic family. So that was in us. The idea of service to community and, and service to our nation was always something that we talked about, although I didn't really have a military family. Um, so one of the things that my parents put in front of me was college. You can do whatever you want to, but you need to go to college first. Um, and a good family friend said, hey, if you're going to go to college, you might as well go through a commissioning program and you can be an officer in the Marine Corps. And that's exactly what I did. So I uh, went to college, uh, got a criminal justice degree, thought that would be fun to study for a few years and uh, ended up as an infantry officer uh, serving with 1st Battalion, 5th Marines out of Camp Pendleton. So, yeah, it was uh, for me and, and maybe the same for you. I know it is for a lot of folks. Uh, that day of commissioning was for me a dream come true. It was something I had looked forward to uh, really as early as I had the ability to dream about doing something uh, that brought those pieces together. And then, you know, having no idea what the future would hold, but uh, that was a, a, such a, a proud moment for me and something I'd really pointed my life toward. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. Uh, it's funny you say that because yeah, the commissioning, you know, uh, for me, it was sort of like a culmination of just surviving four years of ROTC. <laughs> right, um, right, right. Yeah, you know, I, I say it often. When I talk about like my career, you know, people ask me about my career, and I, you have any regrets or anything you do different? I say, yeah, I would go back and be a cadet, new lieutenant, all over again, and do it better. Because mm. I just my mindset wasn't in the right spot. Yeah. Like I, I didn't really get in the right mindset until I found out I was being deployed, leading up to my first deployment, and then thereafter. Like it mm. took me. A lot of time, you know, I initially joined the military as a means to an end, right? I just wanted to pay for college. And yeah. the ROTC thing in the pre-9-11 world was just sort of a, a, a hurdle, if you will. It was, wasn't an opportunity for me. It was an obstacle. And I, I had a bad attitude. And I, 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 you know, I always said I'd like to go back and do it again. So while I was certainly happy and proud to be commissioned, and it was a, a seminal moment in my life, uh, I, I wouldn't underscore its importance. I just kind of still didn't know what I was getting myself into at that point in time. And, of course, 23-plus yeah. years, almost 24 years now later, I'm still sitting here in a uniform and still serving. So, uh, you know, God puts you where he wants you to be. And so does the military for that matter. No, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, it's funny because for me, really what started me thinking about the military, I, I talk about this all the time. I have it on the bookshelf behind me somewhere. Um, it's a book that my dad gave me when I was really young. I was nine or 10. And it was stories of those who had received the Congressional Medal of Honor for serving during World War II. So it was a book he had as a kid. He gave it to me. And so for me, my mind was, if I could ever get to the point where I could join that uh, brotherhood or that fraternity, uh, you know, it was, it was the biggest thing in the world to me. So just putting on that uniform and finally having the second lieutenant bars pinned on my shoulder was a really big deal. And as you mentioned, it was pre 9-11, so there was not a lot going on in the world. But to just be part of that history was, uh, to me, again, at that moment in my, in my life, that was the biggest thing that had ever happened to me. Um, but then, you, you know, 9-11 would happen and everything we've experienced since then. So uh, I didn't realize how much would change, but that was a big day. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned 9-11 and everything. When you got in, was there ever a thought of combat in your mind? Because, again, we were in a pre-9-11 world. We, we were in the Clinton administration, for crying yeah. out loud. Life was hunky-dory. We had time, all sorts of time to do things in the White House back then we weren't supposed to be doing. So, you know, it, the combat was nowhere near our mindset at that point in time. Yeah, so my desire to go into the Marine Corps was about the infantry and was about combat and mm -hmm. having read those stories, right? So that was uh, my focus. And it's weird, and I don't think people understand this that didn't grow up in the 90s or come through, you yeah. know, kind of that time. 
But we did have things happen. You know, Somalia happened in the 90s. Uh, Desert Storm yeah. happened in the 90s. There were some weird, you know, little things that happened in the 90s. So the idea of deploying into an Iraq or an Afghanistan, that was not in my mind. But the thought that if I am an infantry Marine and I lead well and I'm in the right unit, then perhaps we can go and do something, right? Um, and it, it, in my mind, it was a small scale something. It was a single unit something. But I, I thought that maybe there was something out there. But my decision to get out of the Marine Corps, and we can talk about this, but I had already decided to get out of the Marine Corps before going to Iraq because <laughs> nothing was happening. And there was so much just, um, you know, you're training all the time, you're preparing all the time, and it's it's like you're practicing for the game and you you know the game's never coming. So, yeah, weird, weird time, weird time. All right, so uh, you're going through uh, your commissioning. You go to the infantry officer basic course and everything else. Where are you headed right after that's over? Yeah, so for the Marine Corps, you know, and a lot of people know this, I guess, but every Marine officer goes to a six-month course called the basic officer course. So yep. you're commissioned. Uh, after You've gone OCS, you're commissioned. You go to the basic officer course. Every Marine officer goes there. And then you go to what the Army would call an A school, your MOS school. And for me, that was infantry officer course. So I went there for another 10 weeks and from there directly to Southern California, to Oceanside, Camp Pendleton to serve with, uh, with one five and, uh, checked in as a second Lieutenant. I was a rifle platoon commander, um, in a helicopter company, a great experience, great time. Um, and you know, I say this all the time. I learned how to be a Marine officer as a second Lieutenant in that platoon. Uh, at the time, Staff Sergeant Zapata, who retired as a Sergeant Major, um, took his responsibility to mentor me very seriously. And that taught me how to be a Marine officer and learned that uh, we deployed um, to uh, Okinawa, did a, did a float. And that was awesome. Uh, eventually it's weird how the timing worked out, but because of how nine 11 happened and everything, uh, I was in that unit uh, all of my active duty time. So I mm-hmm. uh, served with those Marines for a long time, eventually deploying in uh, 2003. All right. So once you uh, get to your duty station, um, where are you on 9-11? Because it happened shortly thereafter, I assume, within the next six months, right? Yeah. So we had um, we had deployed. We had gone to, to Okinawa. We came back and uh, we were in that down phase. So starting to get qualifications back. We had Marines coming on, on board. So I had been there for uh, a little while. Um, we... <laughs> It's just it's kind of weird thinking back on it. I haven't thought about it for a long time, but uh, thinking back to that time, we were on the rifle range, Camp Pendleton qualifying. So it was, you know, the known distance course and uh, we're just doing our thing. And uh, someone came over the loudspeaker and talked about what had happened, that the uh, planes had hit the towers. Um, a couple of Marines that I knew, a couple of lieutenants that I knew had family that was traveling and uh, so they scrambled back to figure out what was going on, right? So that all happened. Uh, I'll never forget it. I had a Marine come up to me. He's like, sir, what does this mean for us? And again, coming out of the 90s, it, it didn't mean anything, right? It meant we were going to bomb somebody <laughs> or we we're going to be mad at somebody or we we're going to uh, rattle the saber, so to speak. And so, you know, as a 23-year-old guy or whatever I was, uh, I very arrogantly said, this doesn't mean anything for us. This won't change anything for us. Uh, nothing's going to happen in our lives. And, you know, like uh, a year and a half later, when we were standing in Kuwait, uh, he reminded me of that. But yeah, it was, uh, it was surreal. And then, you know, that day, uh, I had duty. So that night, I went back and um, Camp Pendleton was locked down. Uh, as the uh, officer on duty that night, uh, 
just an incredible weird time. Uh, everything was changing, but then that was the first time I had the opportunity to sit and watch on the news what had happened, and uh, it really became real. So the announcement was kind of like, wow, somebody did something, and a lot of things had happened uh, up to that point, um, you know, in my life. Uh, but that was certainly the biggest. And watching on the news, uh, the planes hit the towers. Uh, that's when you really knew this this would impact all of us. Uh, we didn't know how, but it would impact all of us. Yeah, certainly did. Uh, you know, again, it was for me, it was one of those things as a native New Yorker. Uh, I spent half the morning, half the day trying to locate friends and family yeah, yeah. inside of Manhattan, which uh, this was back in the days when uh, a cell phone, when you called it, if the if the towers were jammed, you just got a beep, 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 and it automatically hung up on yep. you. So yep. You weren't able to get in touch with anybody. In fact, uh, my brother had to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge to get home wow. uh, that day. So it's it was a you know uh, it was a rough day for all of us by every stretch of the imagination, uh, and none of us really knew what we were getting into. And even even me that day, I remember calling my armory uh, and, and asked, "Where are we going? What are we doing? You know, yep. how, how is yep. all this going to work out? What's next?" Uh, and of course, next became wait, hurry up and wait. Uh, yeah. If you weren't part of the special operations force, but. Yeah. Did you guys think that the Marine, you guys and fellow Marines think that you guys were going to be the first ones out the door? So again, such a weird time, right? <clears throat> so we were, um, that happened, 9-11 happened. Um, obviously special forces units were deploying forward and were in need of support. So our battalion, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines was actually tasked to deploy at the time to Tajikistan um, to provide security and do some other things. So 9-11 happened. We were supposed to be on the ground in Tajikistan before Thanksgiving. So we spun up very, very quickly. Our entire battalion did, which again, coming out of a peacetime military where everything is, uh, you know, blank ammunition. If you even have that, it, it's training, but it's more movements. We had so much ammunition and so much opportunity to train dumped on us that we spun up. And that's all we did from the moment we were tasked, which was a few weeks after 9-11, uh, until we were supposed to be in Tajikistan supporting what was happening there. We trained, it was moved back, moved back again, moved back again. We were supposed to then uh, land in Afghanistan or Tajikistan in December, uh, December 25th, Christmas Day. We were supposed to be boots on the ground. We had planes loaded at March Air Reserve Base, and then the mission was canceled. So when that happened, we had spent you know the holidays and a few months training every single day, um, basically on a deployment, even though we're at Camp Pendleton, no one went home uh, training for that. And then that was pulled. And we were told, you know, instead of that, instead of that combat mission, you're going to go back to Okinawa and you're going to sit there for a year. Um, and so I, I can't even explain kind of the, the crushing feeling of that because of what had happened to our country, because of, you know, the, the fact, the very real fact that a lot of Americans lost their lives. We had been under attack. We had the opportunity as Marines who trained to go forward and do this mission to do it. And then we were told, no, what we're going to do basically is put you on the shelf while the game plays out. And I, I remember coming back to our battalion area the day after we were told the mission was canceled. Um, man, it, it, it was the strangest environment. You've got 1,200 Marines, right? A lot of whom had been stop lost. Uh, so they weren't going to get out. They were supposed to get out. They weren't going to get out because we're going to go do this mission. And you've got 1,200 Marines uh, and it, you know, everyone walking around like their mom had just died. Um, it, it was it was the worst feeling, you know, in the world at that time. And again, it's all putting it in perspective now. We ended up deploying to Iraq and things changed. But 
Um, yeah, so there was a moment where we thought we're going to be there. We're going to be, if not the tip of the spear, we're going to be close. And then we're going to miss it all because we're going to go to Okinawa. And by the time this thing's done, uh, we missed it. And, and, and that was the catalyst for me going, you know what? It's, it's probably time to start putting in paperwork to get out. All right, so hold on, back up a second, because there's a yep. couple of there's a couple of things here that uh, I want to get through, and most notably the invasion itself. But um, 9-11 happens, and you know you wanted to go into the infantry to be sort of a, for lack of a better term, an instrument of war, because that's what sure. Marine infantrymen yeah, do. That's right. Um, and then you're you're hit with the very prospect that you know combat is is on the horizon. Yep. You're raised by a pastor. Obviously, there's a deep connection to God. At, at what point in, was there a point in time where you had to reconcile within yourself, war is bad, God is yeah. good, I'm about to go do a bad thing for a good thing for a good reason. I, I, what, what is the mental gymnastics here you have to do? Yeah, so thankfully I was raised you know, in a home where we talked about things like that, and we talked about the Bible and, and what it means. And so I had a, a pretty strong uh, foundation of, of biblical understanding, even at that time in my life. Now, um, I'll, I'll say that with this caveat, before I went to Iraq, I didn't really feel like I needed to do a lot of reconciling. Um, I, I just did, unless someone has been in combat, um, they don't really understand what all of that, that means. That they is don't correct, yes. Yeah, they don't understand what it means to, to take a life, to see lives taken, to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your vehicles roll through villages yeah. where... Family. You see the depravity yeah. of, I mean, look, it's almost one of those things where it's like, how could God allow this to exist, sure. right? Sure. Like I, in a world where God is supposed to take care of everything, how could God allow this level of depravity and sort of awfulness, for lack of a better term, yeah. to exist? So it's it's crazy now, you know, what the Bible does talk about is is God using warriors. And throughout the Old Testament, certainly we see that again and again, God using warriors uh, as as instruments against evil. And as a Marine, as a United States Marine, um, I really believed in, in, you know, again, it's been harder over the last several years, but I really believed at the time, certainly, that the United States represented good and represented right all of the time, and that if we were going to be sent somewhere, uh, it was to do good against evil. Oh, you naive fool. Yes, of course. Um, (laughs) it, it, It is, you know... If you were to ask me and you didn't ask me, should we have gone to Iraq? Um, and you didn't ask me, but I'll give you my answer. The answer now is no. But at the time, it was it was you know, absolutely. Um, what I did believe, though, and what I still believe, is that when bad people do things, good people need to stand up and stop them. Correct. <laughs> and, and we could talk about what that means geopolitically. Uh, but personally, at that moment in my life, I knew that some bad people had done some stuff and we were good people that needed to stand up against them and really had nothing to reconcile in my mind between my belief and faith in God and bad people killing good people. Um, and then going to Iraq, as you mentioned, there is that, how could these things happen and why would God allow these to happen? But I had to settle in my own heart. I'm not God, so I can't answer that question. But I know there are a lot of good people here, farmers, uh, families, children, people doing their work that that are being absolutely oppressed, murdered, um, you know, the rest of it by, by bullies, (laughs) not powerful people, but by bullies uh, who are evil and someone needs to stop them. And honestly, I was, I was proud to be able to, to stop them. Now, 
Should the United States have held that mission in Iraq? Again, that's a different discussion. Um, but I still believe that good people, strong people need to stand up against evil. And, and, and that's uh, really how the math worked in my brain at that time. Sure. All right. So uh, all this is going on and um, we're going to get set for the, uh, well, I mean, obviously we invade Afghanistan, you know, yeah. right after. Did, did you guys think that there was a chance you would go there? Well, we did until we were told we were going to deploy to Okinawa. Now, remember, I mean, you know this, but but for those listening, uh, when you look back over what happened over our 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, that's a different perspective than, you know, 2001, 2002, 2003, when we assumed. So when we went into Iraq, we ended up in Baghdad, we retrograded back, Processing out of the Marine Corps or into the reserves, which is what I ended up doing, that was easy because the war is over, right? It's done. We're done. The war is over. Um, it's time to go home. So we, we had it. no idea this thing was going to last. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, again, uh, uh, us naive fools. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, no, I, w- when we were told we're going to Okinawa, that was the death sentence. It was like, oh, I guess we missed it. History will tell the story that the war took place and we were not a part of it. Well, um, you know, in, in fairness to all of us, like we saw how we ripped through Desert Storm of in course, a matter of, yeah, of course. eight weeks, yep. right? Like there was there was legitimate reason for us to believe that we were going to miss it. Um, yeah, you know. But again, well, you even was, look at even look at something like Somalia, right? Which was uh, really an important event in my life as a young person, thinking about the military, watching what happened there. I mean, incredible event, tragic event, but not that long. I mean, we were there, we got we got out. And so every example I had in my life, and you'd have to go all the way back to Vietnam to get a different example. Um, every example I had in my life was we go in, we go in quick, and, and then it's over. So, yeah, we thought we're done. We'll never be a part of this, and it'll be another 20 years before anything happens. All right. So at this point in time, you start actually out processing to go to the reserves? Yeah, I put in my paperwork. So again, in the Marine Corps, uh, as a uh, as a lieutenant, before you're promoted to captain, uh, you have the opportunity to either put in your paperwork to go into the reserves to get out um, or to stay in and uh, be fully commissioned. It's it's a process called augmentation. It's a weird process. Anyhow, so I put in my paperwork uh, to go into the reserves um, because I, I assumed that I would get out. So my uh, end of uh, active service date on my contract was July 1st of 2003. And as we're coming into this Okinawa deployment, um, I put my paperwork in because when we got back, whenever that was, and we had all been stop lost as well, whenever that was going to be, uh, I knew I wanted to process out. And, and the reason for me was uh, I was married. I had um, a couple of kids and I needed to start working on whatever the next phase of my life was. And I knew it wasn't sitting in a, you know, administrative role somewhere in the Marine Corps. Um, so yeah, so put the paperwork in and and kind of got ready for an Okinawa deployment and just assumed that would be that would be the end of it. What what happens on the Okinawa deployment? I mean, what, first of all, what are you expecting going in? Yeah, so well, you know, nothing. We we were <laughs> so what? Uh, man, I, I hate to even tell this story because I feel so bad. Second Battalion, Fifth Marines, was in Okinawa. They were given word that they were going to rotate back to the states at the end of two thousand two. And they would then um, spin up again and deploy to Kuwait, Iraq, uh, eventually. And 1-5 would replace them. Um, Again, the Marine Corps is crazy. The military is crazy. We had 
Marines in Okinawa doing the turnover. They had Marines in the United States doing the turnover. And um, I don't know what the date was. It was at the end of December 2002. Um, Somebody made a decision. No, no, no. You know what we're going to do? One five, you're not going to Okinawa now. (laughs) Now you're going to Kuwait. Two five, sorry you've been there for seven months. You're staying for another at least six. I think they ended up being there for another year. Um, Yeah. Anyhow, again, we thought the war was going to be over. They thought they missed it. They didn't miss it. They ended up in Iraq as well. Um, but yeah, so so we went from thinking we're going to Okinawa. Um, <laughs> we had, uh, I think, 12 vaccines or something to go to Okinawa. And then two or three days later, they're like, yeah, line up again. We're going to the Middle East. And uh, that cold weather gear um, that you had, we're taking that back. And it, you're now wearing different camis. And And a few weeks later, we were sitting in Kuwait just trying to figure out what, what was going to happen next. So you never actually make it to Okinawa. I was in Okinawa in uh, 2000. So that was my first deployment with one. Right. Okay. Um, but uh, the second deployment and, and for Marines, the Marines are listening that have been on the 31st Mew. Um, it's called the 30 worst Mew for a reason. There is zero possibility of anything happening when you're on that Mew. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's a terrible, terrible deployment. I enjoyed it. I, I'm glad I went, but I never wanted to go back. No Marine did. Um, so I had been there, and uh, the second time we were supposed to go back, it, it was pulled at the last minute, and we were redirected to Kuwait. So, yeah, crazy, crazy time. All right, uh, so you end up in Kuwait now. When do you first start hearing about the invasion of Iraq? When we went to Kuwait, again, getting a mindset, particularly for people that have deployed in the last 20 years to uh, Iraq, when we went to Kuwait, we landed, we, we flew Continental Airlines at the time, you know, it's United now, Continental landed their planes at March Air Force Base. We got on. I mean, these were, you know, regular flight attendants. Um, flew to Kuwait, got on buses. They drove us out into the middle of the desert and said, get off. Yeah. There were con- there were Connex boxes there. Um, and, and that first night, we literally, was, it was, you know, formed up. Put your sleeping bag down and we'll figure it out tomorrow. Eventually, that became, you know, several of the camps that were there. It all built out. Um but it was pretty quick. Uh, General James Mattis was the division commander, and it was within a couple of weeks that large-scale, um, there would be a sand table, but you know, planning operations, planning meetings, us walking through what an invasion would look like. It was within just a couple but, of weeks that, that that was happening. So, so you never uh, thought we, Afghanistan while you were in Kuwait? Never, never thought Afghanistan were in okay. Kuwait. In fact, I think it was probably two weeks. We'd been there two weeks, and we were – um, moving vehicles to the border of Iraq and then pulling back. And we continued to do that just to see what would happen. So it, it was very, very quick when we put boots on the ground in Kuwait that we knew eventually we'd end up in Iraq. Didn't know what that would look like, but eventually we'd get there. When does eventually happen? I mean, obviously it's in March, but I mean, as yeah. you're getting closer to March, are you starting to sense that, you know, it could happen any day now kind of deal? Yeah, it was... Um, we started live firing weapons, setting up ranges, yeah. uh, firing firing things like the Javelin missile. Um, our My platoon was the platoon that field tested the Javelin for the Marine Corps. So we had fired one, um, and, and that was it. No one had the opportunity to shoot any more of those. We had someone hand us like 10 of them, <laughs> and like, go fire these. You need to be ready. Uh, we were setting up tow ranges, firing the Tow 2 Bravo, which at the time was the newest tow missile. Um so it, it became apparent very, very quickly that things were about to get real. We started to not only move 
toward the border and pull back, but set up on the border for three or four days and pull back. And um, March, I think the evasion was March 19th and 20th. Yep. Uh, March 18th, we were given a be prepared to. And in the middle of the night, um, everyone was awakened. We hit the uh, ammo supply point and moved our vehicles uh, to to the border. Uh, so it all happened really, really fast. And again, our battalion had been together a long time. So we had trained together for a long time. Um, but uh, yeah, it went from sit, train, sit, train, sit, train, sit, train to go. It's time to go right now. Not, not in a few minutes right, right now. Right. And then we, and then we ended up sitting on the border for several days uh, before we actually did, did go in. Um, Jeremy, do you have a conversation with your troops never having been in combat or anything? Do, are you, do you, do, were any of your, your NCOs ever in combat before? I mean, what sort of conversations are you having about what you guys are about to walk into? In our battalion of 1,200 Marines, um, our battalion commander had been to Somalia, and one of the company gunnery sergeants who was actually killed in Baghdad uh, when he was with us had also been in uh, had been in Desert Storm. Uh, one of my platoon sergeants had been in Desert Storm, but had not been in uh, you know in combat. He had been part of the, the buildup, um, and maybe two or three others. So really again in 1200 marines even even the leadership those that have been in the marine corps a long time had not really been in a combat environment so this is brand new to all of us which made crossing the border in the middle of the night and engaging the enemy for the first time such a surreal experience it was brand new to all of us um this is fast forwarding but we went into baghdad april 10th uh, battle of baghdad just, just insane battle we had over 100 casualties uh, two kia most wounded in action uh, blew out 40 or 50 vehicles. It was, it was a crazy, crazy environment. The next morning, um, my battalion commander was checking lines and I was looking at our guys and he stopped and he said, I've never seen anything like this in my life. I was in Somalia. Um, and I used to think that was crazy. This was crazier than that. And, and just talking about that. So, so no frame of reference really for any of our Marines, particularly the younger guys. So the conversation was we've trained well, we've done everything we needed to do. We've been together a long time. I had trained with that platoon for, for uh, two years just because of the way things laid out following 9-11 and getting ready for this deployment. Uh, we know what we're supposed to do. We're organized well. We're led well. We don't know what it's going to look like on the other side of the border, but we're going to do our job. That's what the conversation was, and I, I meant that sincerely. Uh, again, I didn't have any... Uh, frame of reference really either other than what I read and seen and right. you know, watched perhaps on a movie, but that was the conversation. And really it was about focusing on, and I'm, I'm thankful for good leaders in my life that taught me this, but it was about getting the Marines focused on doing the job at hand, doing what they knew they were supposed to do. If they were an anti-armor guy, you know, employing their weapons well, they were drivers driving well, <laughs> uh, whatever the role was doing that, this is not different than that. We're going to go do what we've been training to do. And, and that's really how it played out in the first, uh, first half uh, of the day of the first day of the war. Do you get scared at any point? What is crazy, and I've tried to explain this to people. You, you would understand this. Combat, guys would, uh, combat folks would understand this. Um, no, not until <laughs> the shooting stopped. And then on the other side of a firefight, there's always this, whether it's an adrenaline dump or whatever it is, it's not fear as much as it is this just overwhelming sense of what just happened, but coming into a firefight, coming into these, these environments, uh, there was too much going on. When we went, uh, when we crossed the border, uh, 
all, all these things are happening, right? The division is crossing the border. First Battalion, Fifth mm-hmm. Marines is the, uh, the lead unit in the division. My platoon was the lead platoon in the battalion. Um, I was a second vehicle back navigating for our platoon. I, I had 80 Marines, 18 vehicles. Um, I, was, I was the senior lieutenant in our battalion, so we were all the anti-armor assets were up front, and that was my, my platoon. So that's happening. Um, every asset in the division was supporting our crossing the border into Southern Iraq. So you look, it's the middle of the night, but the, uh, artillery that was being dumped in Iraq was absolutely insane. I had two radios going on, um, Mm -hmm. at any time the tracer rounds are coming back our direction for the first time. And we're trying to navigate these connections, um, that we're supposed to have as we get across the border. Right. So there was so much going on. There was not an opportunity to be afraid. Now, fast forward seven hours, eight hours where you're sitting there going, what just happened? And you start to try to process it. I don't know if it was fear, but certainly, you know, a lot of anxiety and, um, just this overwhelming sense of, of man, just pressure, like, like weight. Here's what I would say. I think there's a difference between being scared and having fear. Yeah, I feel like scared go. scared is active and fear is sort of passive, right? Sure. Fear, fear is a is an emotional state. Scared is a immediate feeling. Yeah. Um. And, and maybe splitting hairs here, but you know, it's one of those things where I think anybody who says they went into combat without fear is probably lying to themselves on some sure. level, right? Sure. There's always a certain level of oh, sh- I may die. Right. Like that. Yeah. You, you have to be aware of your own mortality in this whole thing. Um, and there's a difference between being so scared that you freeze up and can't actually yeah. function uh, in the moment. So, you know, again, um, while yeah. not getting too wordy well, on I, it. And I will say to that, right. Later on, when we had other when we were in other firefights and other things happened, my response was different. Mm-hmm. That first night of the war, that first engagement, it wasn't even real to me, honestly you know, it should have been, it was, it was surreal. You know, it was that feeling like what in the world is even going on right now? And then, so I don't know that I was connected to reality enough to really be afraid. It was another training operation right. here in 29 Palms. Uh, we were doing what we had been doing for, you know, for several years um, later on. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the, this is going to get really bad, really fast. And we not, may not make it out of here. Uh, that was a real feeling in, in, in later firefights, but that first one was just, it was just so much to take in all at once. And it took me a while to even process through that. How far into getting over the berm? Cause that's gotta be an awesome feeling. I like, go, oh, we're here. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whether, you, whether you know we're coming or not, we're here. Uh, but how far getting over the berm, how many, how much time elapses before you actually see contact? For us, it was, it was immediate as soon okay. as, you know, the berm was breached, you know, a hole was blown in the berm so that we could push through it and push forward. Um, the division had already been dropping a lot of artillery. So it was no secret that we were coming. Right. And it, it was, it was one of those events where we had been preparing for a daytime invasion. So all of our markers were visual markers. Uh, the lanes that were being put to avoid the mines that we had just dropped were all visual. And it was the middle of the night. Uh, we, we pushed 12 hours earlier than we were supposed to, or than, than we originally were planning on doing. Um, so contact was immediate. The, again, that feeling of the tracers are coming our direction. That's weird. <laughs> that's never happened before. Um, it, it, it was immediate. Now what we went in with was overwhelming. Uh, so as we breached the berm, 
Um, there was immediate contact, but we overwhelmed that contact. It wasn't until later in the day that uh, Lieutenant Shane Childers was killed and some other Marines were injured and, and things happened later on in the day. But but immediately we overwhelmed. Uh, I, I honestly, I know they were trying to kill us or whatever. I feel bad for the soldiers that were sitting on the southern border of Iraq waiting for us to uh, to invade their country. They had no idea what was coming. And what was coming was not only our battalion, uh, but about 30,000 Marines from the 1st Marine Division and then the Army 3rd um, Infantry Division. Yeah. It, it was overwhelming. Yeah. Shock and awe, right? Um, Shock and awe. When when you see one of your teammates uh, get killed in action, uh, what happens to your mental mindset? How does it transition? I, I tell the story. I told the story a lot, and I, I wrote about this in the book March or Die. But um, so Shane Childers was uh, we call a Mustang in, in the Marine Corps. He had been an enlisted Marine. Um, I think he was a staff sergeant before he was commissioned. Uh, exemplary Marine knew exactly what he was supposed to do all of the time, led his Marines well, uh, had an affable character, right? He was just a, he was a likable guy. He was a competent guy. He was very, very good at what he did. And so everyone knew him as um, an officer in the battalion. We knew him well, and he was killed. Um, called in his own medevac. I mean, just a, just a remarkable wow. human ve- human being, right? And so you're on the radio listening to Shane calling a medevac for himself. And, um, and then, you know, that, that medevac is downgraded because he, he had died. Uh, so that happens. And the only experience with people close to me dying in the past was not in combat where there was a mission that we needed to continue. It was if someone dies in a car accident or someone dies because of a health issue or whatever, you stop everything. And, and you mourn and you deal with the loss of that person. I remember after Shane was killed, probably 12 or 15 hours later, our battalion commander uh, called us to his vehicle. And I've talked to him about this since then as well. But they called us to his vehicle and, and, and basically laid out for the officers in the battalion. This is, this is the follow-on mission, all right? Division passed down. This is where we're going. This is what we're doing. Get your Marines ready. And I felt, and maybe it was just me feeling it, but I think it was the sense among the you know 10 or 12 of us that were standing there. Um, that someone needed to talk about Shane. Shane had just died and no one's talking about it. Mm-hmm. And, and he, uh, Fred Padilla, retired a couple of years ago as a two-star, incredible human being, and we keep in touch. Um, but at the time, Lieutenant Colonel, right? So he's leading the battalion. He could see it. He stopped. And he said, look, I understand we lost Shane. Um, we all cared for him and we will mourn. We will we're going to go home. We're going to mourn. But now is not the time for that. We have a mission to do. And a lot of people are going to get hurt if we don't do what we are uh, actually here to do. So we need to push forward. Um, and that was the conversation. And I remember at the time, and again, I wrote about this at the time, feeling like that was the coldest thing I ever experienced, right? Someone close to us, someone we cared about, one of our brothers had been killed. And we were told to just keep moving forward. Um, but in retrospect, really what that was, was leadership. That was an understanding that uh, we would mourn, and we did. We came home, of course, several memorial services. Uh, we honored him. We honored his family. But at that time, at that moment, the lesson for me as a young guy was we, we have to keep doing our job, or there's going to be a lot more of that, and it's going to get really, really ugly, and we've got to stay focused. So um, really a life lesson for me in that, uh, you, you, man, you lose someone you care about, um, but you can't lose sight of the environment you find yourself in. I would be remiss if I didn't uh, 
ask this question now with the benefit of hindsight because um, the Mighty Oaks program works with folks suffering from PTSD. It's an organization you co-founded. And again, I want to put the story on pause for this question, but I think it's important to ask here in the moment. Um, You hear that lesson of, hey, continue on, push forward, keep going. We'll mourn, we'll mourn later. We'll we'll take care of it all later. In reality, uh, what a lot of us learned, myself included, was that if I just stuff that stuff away and when later gets here, maybe I'll decide to take it out or maybe I won't or whatever. Uh, And even if we, quote, mourn in our memorial service and everything else, we're not necessarily dealing with all the issues that come with it because right after a done morning, guess what? It's back to continue mission, carry yeah. on, move yeah. forward on to the next one, uh, which has been detrimental in many of us recovering yeah. or dealing yeah. or learning to live with PTSD and, and, and so on and so forth. So with the benefit of hindsight, now with your work through the Mighty Oaks, would you echo that same advice to people going forward who are struggling with trauma? At that moment, that was the best advice for um, for us to receive. None of us had ever dealt with that, and we could have stopped <laughs> and not continued the mission or been off focus. So, as we engage with the enemy going forward, uh, you, you know, we're not present enough to do the job that we were called to do. I think it's different for someone to say, Hey, we've got a job to do. The enemy is still there. They're still trying to hurt us and kill us. We need to stay sure. focused. Absolutely. It, it's different doing that, which is, is, you know, what that was, at least in my mind, looking back, it's different doing that and saying, Hey, forget it. Or you need to be stronger or you need to just keep moving. Um, there was nothing in that that was you need to just keep moving. It was we're in a moment in time where we need to stay focused. And when our focus is able yeah. to change, it will. And connected to that, we had the opportunity, even in that small group, to talk sure. about Shane and to, you know, mm-hmm. to mourn together, if you will. Right. Um, we had an incredible chaplain with us, Kerry uh, 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 Cash, who uh, wrote a book coming out of that. He is uh, on deck to be the chief of chaplains for the Navy. Uh, now. So just, just a great guy. And he spent a lot of time with those Marines, a lot of time with, uh, with that platoon that day and following. So everything was done that could be done in that environment to provide the comfort right. and to process and to deal with it um, without allowing the mission to stop. Sure. And so, it wasn't meant to be a gotcha question. It was no, 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 no. I understand what you're saying. And that's a, that's a very important question because so here's why that's such a significant question, right? Because if we're not careful, we can conflate finishing the mission with, I need to just push it down or get past it or get over it. And it is possible to finish the mission to complete the job without saying, I need to just get over what happened. We need to acknowledge what happened. We need to acknowledge even the hurt and the pain, um, and we need to have a time to mourn, uh, but it's it's possible to do both. I think where we get into trouble is when we just say, "I'm never going to go back and deal with that." Uh, I'm never going to acknowledge that that happened. And even in the moment, there has to be a pause where someone says, "Look, we know what happened. We all cared about Shane in this case. Uh, I'm acknowledging that it took place, that it was terrible, that it hurt, but we don't have time right now to stop and memorialize yeah. that." So yeah, that's it- where I think it's different. But but. Your question is is on point because that is exactly what happens in the military community is we say, you know what, I'm just going to get past. I've got a mission, right? Like, no, 
that mission needs to stop at some point. Well, again, for you to people, deal with what you're dealing with. People equate mission success with overall success, right? And so yeah. the pattern with which we start to teach soldiers, Marines, airmen, uh, Coast Guardsmen, sailors, whatever it may be, is that, okay, put this aside, finish the mission. Correct. Hey, mission complete. Yeah. We're all good. Thumbs up, right? Yeah, like right. We, we've done That's what right. we need to do. Right. So now every soldier goes, well, that worked last time. If I just put my head down and focus on the next task, we'll be good. And, and that is a pattern that we end up repeating um, over the course of months, years, yeah. you know, decades even, um, yeah. before some of us come to the realization that I better unpack all this ish because if I don't, it's going to eat me alive yeah. from the inside out. And, and I'll tell you, one of the things that uh, at the time, Colonel Padilla, General Padilla did um, when we came home was he led the services, uh, not led in the, he wasn't the MC of them, but he, he was up front. He spoke, he talked about what had happened. He talked about how important Shane was. He talked about how we should process it. And to me, that's what leadership looks like because it's not um, stuffing it down and never dealing with it. It's just realizing that there is an appropriate time to deal with it. Sure. Uh, there's also a pressure that comes off of you when you realize in the moment, I don't have to deal with this, but there will be a time when I can. Um, but as you mentioned, it's following through on that time when you can, and then having the right people around you, having uh, people who can you know, help you and support you and, and encourage you along the way um, is very, very important. But yeah, th- this is... Th- to me, it's it's different when you say, I'm never going to deal with this because it worked last time. It's going to crush you at some point. Um, that's different than understanding the ups and downs of life, the, the flow, if you will, the battle rhythm, uh, that there are moments where we're engaging and moments when we're refueling, refitting, and dealing with what happened you know, behind us. All right, good. I, th- I think that was an important conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, great, no, great conversation. I mean, I, I, I always... As somebody who had to, to deal with demons uh, 15 yeah. years later, yeah. um, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I'm, I'm always curious to get people's thoughts uh, yep. on it. Because there's a, there's a lot of people said, in retrospect, I should have dealt with it right in the moment. I, I shouldn't have waited. Um, and other people will, will yeah. say, no, there's a time and a place for it. And there are X, Y, and Z things to do at that time and place, you know, not to forget, you know, what yeah. goes on. And, and uh, it, it, the point is, is that there's not a cookie cutter answer for any of this. No, if there I, was, we would have figured this problem out a long time ago. And, and so, you know, other examples. And, and again, to that point, uh, everyone deals with things differently. And that's, that's fine. I, I learned a long time ago, you need to let people process the way they process. Mm-hmm. But people need to process, right? So this is not, I'm not saying if you're processing is don't deal with it. You need to deal with it. But we were in a, a firefight in Baghdad and one of our Marines engaged a vehicle. They ran a checkpoint. Turns out it was a family. And it was just a crazy, you know, terrible situation. And, and this this Marine just broke down. I mean, just just broke down emotionally. And the response from his Marines, and then the response from me when they called up and said, hey, sir, we got a problem over here. Um, I got up there. Honestly, my response was putting my arm around him and letting him cry. Because that's what he needed to do in that moment. That's how he needed to process it. And then when that was done and we talked through it, it's like, hey, man, we've, we've got to you know, we got to get back to work, but, but take some time. Uh, you don't need to be here. Uh, you know, we've got a place for you to, to, to deal with this, but once you get back, we need to get back. So y- yes, exactly. If someone needs to deal with it in the moment, they need to, they need to have people around them that can help them do that. Um, and then, you know, keep them from allowing that grief to pull them into something that will eventually hurt them. But 
everyone deals with things different. Everyone responds differently uh, and at different times. And we have to deal with it. We have to. So, yeah, that's good. All right. So when and where does your uh, Navy Commendation Medal with V uh, come into play here? How does that whole event unfold? We had been moving for um, you know several days and made our way to and I won't tell the whole story, but we had made our way to an objective. You can tell and, the whole story. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's it's a long story, but um, so well, I we got were, time. <laughs> we were told. Uh, I'll, I'll call to our the command vehicle early one morning, um, April first, two thousand three. So <laughs> April Fool's Day. Uh, hey, we're going to. We were division commander tasked us with going and securing uh, an objective a few miles from here, very small bridge over a very small canal. And I always say that because it was a very small bridge over a very small canal. But for some reason, it was considered to be um, strategically important. And so an entire infantry battalion, 1,200 Marines, is going to be sent to secure this bridge. And the, the intel that we received, uh, this is an important well, part of the story, the intel we received was we're going to do this daytime movement to this bridge to secure the bridge for follow-on operations because there's no enemy presence there. There's no, no enemy soldiers right. there. So it's a movement. Now, it's you guys had been in Baghdad, though, at this point in time. for a No, we were, we were making our way to Baghdad. Okay, so you hadn't gotten was, to Baghdad yet. Hadn't gotten to Baghdad yet. Um, uh, we had been, you know, in several firefights up to this point. but Well, because uh, the main assault force got to Baghdad within like three or four days of the initial invasion. Well, yeah. Well, I, I'm not sure. So I, think, I think the Army got to Baghdad in, yeah. on April, April 9th. Okay. And we got there on April 10th. So gotcha. it was, it was, you know, a few weeks, several weeks after, after the invasion, um, a few weeks after the invasion, trying to okay. put the math together in my mind. Um, so we're making our way to Baghdad, right? Got That's it. where we're okay. going. And so along the way you need to secure this bridge. And so it's the middle of the day. We start to make our way there. Uh, again, I'm navigating for our battalion. So I'm the second vehicle back. And as we came around a bend into kind of the straightaway of the road toward that bridge, and the bridge is up on a berm, you know, as, as bridges are, it was up on a berm. Um, we started receiving mortar fire and it, it was <laughs> immediately apparent that we had received bad Intel. And I, I don't know if we really did, or if that's just what we were told. I, I look back on that. And I think when the division commander sends 1200 Marines to secure an unsecured bridge, you should probably think maybe there's a, an enemy presence there. Um, but anyhow, we started to drive toward that bridge uh, mortar rounds started to fall around us. We were in vehicles. As we got closer, the front side or the near side of that berm uh, also had what we, we later discovered was a company-sized element of Iraqi soldiers. Uh, and this was the last time uh, we would see uniformed Iraqi soldiers, but uh, Iraqi soldiers in a machine gun position. So mortar rounds were falling and we were being engaged by machine guns out of this berm. Um, <laughs> the crazy things you think when people are trying to kill you, what I thought was, those guys said this wasn't going to happen, but here we are. And uh, you just keep moving. And, and we did. We had already rehearsed this hundreds of times at 29 Palms and in Camp Pendleton. And so we had an immediate action drill for it. We did. Uh, we bludgeoned that machine gun position, um, overwhelming force. And our job, my platoon's job, was to sit on the near side of the berm, not to move past that. Um, but the mortar rounds kept falling around us. The, the ground was soft, so the mortars were going into the ground and exploding. The shrapnel was contained, but there was the percussion of those things, and eventually one was going to land on top of us. The road was a pre-planned pre target, clearly. 
So having dealt with the machine gun position, uh, I made the decision, we've got to get to a better position. So let's push on top of the bridge, which was stupid in hindsight. Uh, I got eight vehicles up on top of this bridge that clearly was a pre-planned target. Uh, The mortar rounds falling around our vehicles and around our feet. Uh, At one point, I was standing outside of the vehicle, screaming into my handset, trying to get some some support uh, from indirect behind us in the column. And mortar rounds were falling, again, going into the dirt, the percussion just shaking from the inside out, right? From my feet to my head, uh, just shaking. It, you can't even explain the feeling. Uh, but these these explosions going on literally around us. Um, there was a ZSU-23-4, an anti-aircraft gun, four-barreled anti-aircraft gun that was sitting on the other side of the canal. It had been elevated to, uh, you know, apparently present uh, prevent our helicopters from going over uh, and it started to, to rotate to swing back our direction because now we were the big threat. So we were in a, in a terrible position. Uh, this is where the, the title for my book, March or die came from was from that event. Um, there was a, a motto at Charlie company one five when I, where I checked in where I was a, a rifle platoon commander, <laughs> the motto was March or die. You move forward or you stay where you are and die. That's it. Those are your two choices. Mm-hmm. And that day on that bridge, those were our only two choices. So we moved off the top of that bridge, engaged that enemy, um, killed that ZSU-23-4, killed the other enemy soldiers that were there, and um, dealt with those mortar positions as we got off of that position. Um, We didn't know it at the time, but um, there were over 100 enemy soldiers there, and we just kind of rolled up on them. And they were in a bad spot. They fought to really to save our lives. I don't think they cared that we were there. Um, and so it, it was a, a crazy, crazy event um, that potentially could have ended in all of our deaths, but, uh, you know, by God's grace did not. And uh, that was that was that event. I, I look back on that and a lot of lessons I've learned and I wrote a book about it. Um, but it, it, it in my mind, it, it seemed like it lasted an hour. I think it probably lasted minutes. It was not a long event. Um, but our training kicked in, good decision-making in the moment kicked in. And uh, yeah, that's where that, uh, that's where that came from. So it, it was running from vehicle to vehicle, trying to direct fire, but the Marines that were there did exactly what they were trained to do. And you talk about fear. And that's one of those moments I reflect on. Uh, I, I absolutely thought we were going to die. Um, so emotionally, psychologically, I mean, that was all happening inside of you know me and I'm sure the Marines but there is a place where your training can keep that at bay long enough for you to do the job you are there to do. And that's what happened that day when that machine gun position opened up on us, there was no conversation. The Marines did the immediate action drill they needed to do to deal with that. They did. When I said, get on top of the bridge, we did. When we realized it was a terrible, terrible situation. Um, there wasn't a lot of conversation. We moved, got to a better place and engaged the enemy. Um, so uh, really one of those moments I look back on, I, I'm looking, you can't see it, but as I'm looking over my uh, camera, I have a picture of our platoon in Baghdad. And I look at that picture all the time and just wonder what would have happened if things had gone wrong on that bridge. Cause they really, they really could have, but uh, thankfully, you know, professional uh, warriors um, act professionally. And, and we did. I've said before on the show and, you know, I, I I maintain it till the day I die that um, the, the minute you put a, a bullet down range, you, you, the person you were is dead. Uh, sure. And you are all of a sudden a new person. Uh, I don't think many right. of us recognize that in that moment. Um, maybe some of us do, maybe some of us don't. 
Um, but is there a part of you that realizes that, you know, things are just different now after this whole engagement? Yeah, for sure. Even after immediate, immediately after that took place, um, everything to that point had been, so my platoon was anti-armor. So I had toes and, and javelin missiles and heavy machine guns, 50 cals and Mark 19s. So everything that I had been involved in up to that point, we had been in a bunch of firefights crossing into the berm, everything we were doing was at a distance. Um, so impersonal. It, it, it was, yeah, it was pretty impersonal, right? When you're firing a 50 cal on a, uh, on a position or, right. or, or, or when a tow missile lands and it blows up and you're like, cool. <laughs> like so you do that people say butt thing. <laughs> first time I saw a tow missile fired for real and, and we fired some at night, but first time I was standing next to a vehicle when it happened, um, we were engaging with Mark 19s an enemy position. They were dug in. This was, you know, Southern objective. We had been in the country for two hours, three hours. The sun was coming up. Um, and the, the soldiers, the enemy soldiers that were in those dug in positions jumped up, ran over to a, a big truck. I don't, I don't, it looked like a five ton. Well, we had a five ton, you know, big truck, probably 40 of them got on the back of it and started to try to drive away. And one of my tow gunners like, sir, I can get him from here. <laughs> and he, he launched that thing and did. So you watch that happen, but it happened at, you know, 3000 yards or something. Right. right. So it, right. it's not dissimilar to watching a movie or watching a video game. You know, it's right. real. You know, you just said, do that. You authorized it. You know that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's different than they're on top of us and we've got to fight our way out of this. And on the bridge, it was that feeling. It was, they're on yes. top of us. We've got to fight our way out of this. And when that ended, and now the fighting's over, we're resetting uh, our positions. Um, there was an overwhelming sense in my heart that, like, things are different now. And I, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't articulate that, but I knew, and I felt it. And it was, it was like almost a physical feeling, like things are different now. No, again, and the other part of that, too, uh, about your tow missile story is that, guess what? They're not firing back at you right, right correct there, there's yeah, there's yeah, there's right. there's a decided advantage on your side that yes. makes it less of a personal feeling it's that whole don't shoot till you see the whites of their eyes kind of deal mm-hmm. and when you can see the whites of their eyes and you can recognize the enemy that close yeah fear and scared come to this world where they join together <laughs> sure. uh and all of a sudden yeah. it, it, it gets very personal uh yeah. and so yeah i mean i i i think it's an important feeling to recognize i don't, I, I don't think we talk about it enough and mm-hmm. and you know, the, the crazy part is, and I say this, and, and, you know, this is sort of in line with your Mighty Oaks program, but there's a part of me that doesn't remember the old me, mm. that doesn't remember the mm. pre-combat me. Um, I don't know. I, I, th- I feel like in certain ways, if I met pre-combat Mark, like, I, <laughs> I, I, it would be a complete stranger, yeah, and I don't right. know if I'd like that person very much. You know, I mean, it, it's just one of those things where when you, when, when you go through this experience... Uh, and it, 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 it changes you at your very core. Um, you have no choice, but to just learn to be somebody different. And, and I don't, you know, some of that maybe is part of the struggle in all this, right? Um, things used to be so simple and so easy and now they're different, right? You handle everything differently. And so, uh, I think it's really important just to to understand that distinction. Yeah. And you look at the world so differently, Again, as Americans, I, I think we may be unique in this. It, a lot of places in the world, uh, you know, death and poverty and all these things are are very commonplace. You grow up around that. Most Westerners do not. We we don't grow up around any of that. So yeah. just the violence and um, 
you know, all, all of what happens in, in that environment, it, it changes the way you look at everything. It certainly did me. And I, I think, you know, in part, what we call post-traumatic stress coming back from an environment like that, uh, honestly, I think a lot of it is, is less trauma and more just you have a different outlook on the world mm-hmm. than the people around you now. And you, you can't reconcile that. So there is trauma involved. There's a lot of other things involved. But, you know, for me coming back home and even in a ministry environment coming out of the Marine Corps, I was a mess. But for me, I just I couldn't reconcile it. Like I couldn't I couldn't get the pieces to come together because who I left as, as you mentioned, was very different than who I came back as. The people I came back to didn't understand me, nor should they have, honestly. But I didn't understand them any anymore either. I, I just couldn't I couldn't look at the world the same way. And uh, it does. It changes. It changes a lot of things. Fundamentally, it changes who you are. When did you find out you were getting the Navy combination of analog V device? Um, like a year and a half later. Okay. Well, yeah, it was, it was <laughs> yeah. all that. It was a long time was, ago. After there was, that, there was yeah. nothing, nothing big in the moment. Um, you, you get back from the initial invasion. Uh, for somebody who thought they had missed the whole war and was ready to get out, mm-hmm. uh, when you get back, uh, what are you thinking and feeling at that point in time? Are you now all hoorah and ready to, to stay in longer or what? So – you know, again, when we retrograded from Baghdad back to Kuwait and then back home, um, the, the famous picture is uh, um, of the, uh, the aircraft carrier that has mission accomplished, you know, spelled out on it. President Bush said, hey, mission accomplished, we're done. So for me, my next stop, if I had stayed in the active duty Marine Corps, would have been to a B billet, which could have been a good B billet. I don't know, but probably would have been an administrative position somewhere. And the thought of that just killed me. Uh, thought the war was not over, but would be over soon. Um, and then we we'll, we won't be going back into this. So it wasn't like at that time I looked down the road and thought I could do this as a company commander or you know in some other uh, role. I thought we were done deploying. <laughs> so um, no, I came home and thought, man, I'm, I'm really thankful. Uh, and grateful to have been a part of that. Um, and I'm still proud of that and still thankful to be a part of that in spite of, you know, a lot of the other, you know, issues connected to it. Uh, I'm very grateful to have served with Marines, to have served in that capacity, to have been uh, tested and tried and to to see in real time how uh, training works and to meet the people. I mean, there's so many things I'm so thankful for. I'd never go back and change that. But I I really believed that that was finished um, and transitioned out, uh, stayed connected to the um, uh, the reserves for a while because I, I had a really hard time getting away from the Marine Corps. Um, but I knew it was a new phase of life. Where I had a hard time was seven months later, eight months later, I was out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I was working on a church staff and the war wasn't over. Not only that, but 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, my battalion, a lot of my Marines deployed back to um, uh, this time Afghanistan and the first battle of Fallujah was seven months after we got back from Iraq and uh, one, five Marines were there. Uh, some of the Marines that I had trained and, and, and served with were killed. That's when it got really, really hard for me again. And uh, I started to try to uh, figure out how I could get back to the active duty forces and, and deploy again. Uh, didn't happen. <laughs> Part of it was what did you? Wife. What did your wife? I was going to say. What did your yeah. wife say when you told her you wanted to go back? Yeah, I don't remember her saying much. Um, but just the the practical- sometimes wives don't have to say much. Yeah, and she didn't, and it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah, 
it, it was like, I, you know, we had small kids. I had a, I don't know, two, two year old, three year old. Um, I had other people depending on me. I had taken a new job and it was just, it was highly impractical. And I was a complete mess at that time in my life, by the way. And so to add that to it would have been, honestly, it probably would have been the end of my marriage and, you know, every meaningful relationship in my life, because I was, I was very close at that time, anyhow, uh, to, to all that kind of falling apart. So, um, staying connected through the reserves and, you know, potentially being an individual augment somewhere or something, uh, it just had to be enough. And by that time, the military had figured kind of, uh, the personnel issues out. And so it never came to that, but, um, yeah. That was a, that was a really tough time. I, that was probably the single hardest moment finding out that those Marines had been killed in Fallujah. And I wasn't with them um, that I had have had since since coming back from Iraq. Uh, is this the point where you, I guess, start to turn back to God? I mean, not that you ever turned away from him per se, yeah. but where you sort of make the transition, the dive into this is what's going to be the focus of my life's work. Yeah. So I went into, to the ministry and, and it was, we had been attending this church when I was uh, stationed at Camp Pendleton. The church was uh, a small church, but it was growing. And the the pastor there, I talked to him and said, I'm, I'm thinking about transitioning out of the military. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, I don't have a Bible degree. I still don't have a Bible degree. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he said, well, we're growing a lot. We're getting into some building projects and other things. If you'd want to come on as kind of a project manager for us, you know, that'd be great. Figure that out. So it wasn't even like I'm going into the ministry. It was going, I'm going to work for my church <laughs> and um, quickly started doing ministry stuff. Um, you know, a lot of just basic ministry, including teaching and, and uh, a lot of that. Um, but I personally was struggling so badly. I was so angry at home. I um, made life terrible for my wife and small kids. I, uh, was a disaster, even on the church staff, which is funny to think about, but I start yelling at staff members during staff meetings, right? Like, like, you don't understand what life is really like. And, and, uh, they, you know, dealt with it for a while, uh, until it got so bad, they couldn't deal with it anymore. And the pastor, you know, who cared for me and my family said, look, this is just not working. I've been there about 11 months. This is not working. Um, I, I don't know how to help you. I want to help you. I just don't know how to help you, but, but you've got to figure this thing out. And, and I was confronted, right? And he confronted me with just how bad I had been behaving, um, how hurtful it was to my family, to the people around me. And that was the moment where I needed to and did start taking responsibility for myself and figure out how to move forward. So, um, yeah, that was, that was that time. That was a time where I said, all right, well, this is where I am now. I believe God has me here and wants me here. So I'm going to, just as I fully committed to being a Marine, um, I'm going to fully commit to uh, to life now, um, you know, in, in ministry, whatever that means. Eventually what that meant was, you know, four years later, five years later, uh, I actually pastored a church. Um, it's crazy to think about, um, but pastored a church. And it was at that time that um, Chad Robichaux, who was founding the Mighty Oaks Foundation, we met each other and he said, hey, help me with this thing. And uh, we started to work with veterans and, and that was 2012 and, and haven't turned back since then. I mean, look, pretty amazing. Um, you know, I know it's hard to describe the whole process, but, you know, what what is the process to better understanding yourself through this and, and getting over some of the anger, getting over some of the frustration or whatever it may be? I mean, 
Can you sort of talk a little bit through that? Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny because my wife and I, we now have the ability to, uh, or the opportunity to speak together um, at different conferences and different things. And uh, a few years ago, I was, I was making this, this statement while we were talking, she's standing next to me. It took me about a year to get over this. Right. And I told this, a lot of the story we just talked about, and it, it took me a year to get over this. And she stopped me in, you know, like a public setting, right. <laughs> People there and said, no, it took you about 10 years. Um, and it took a very long time. So that's number one is it takes a long time. Um, as you said, uh, things change and that's okay, but things do change. You're not the same and you need to figure out what that looks like going forward. Um, for me, it, it really started with accepting responsibility for who I was and my behavior. I say all the time now that there is no excuse for bad behavior. There may be reasons, but there is no excuse to behave badly. Uh, you can't say, well, because I was in combat or I was in the military, um, there's no excuse. So if that's where you are, you need to get help and you need to find uh, out how you can continue to move forward. It was taking responsibility for myself and taking responsibility for my actions and realizing uh, that I was hurting people, that I was not behaving well. And then finding people who could speak into my life, who could help me, who could encourage me. Um, it was understanding the way that I should live. And then every day getting up and determining to align to that. And then when I fail, um, you know, get back up and do it again the next day. A big part of going to Mighty Oaks or, you know, helping to start Mighty Oaks was, was that. Um, it was as I invested in helping other people move forward, uh, I was able to move forward myself in, in an even better way. Uh, having conversations allows you to um, process or internalize helpful things for yourself as you're trying to help other people. Telling your story, the more you tell your story, uh, the more you're able to process through the feelings and the emotions and the difficulties and the trials. Um, thankfully, I had good people in my life that kept me from self-medicating and getting involved in you know, illicit behaviors that often just continue to drag you down a hole that's hard enough to get out of without those those behaviors. So it is it is a daily decision to continue moving forward. It's a daily decision to continue uh, learning to grow a little bit at a time. It is refusing to do what a lot of veterans do, which is just accept that I'm a broken veteran and this is how I am and you need to deal with it. That's not okay. It, it's understanding I have unique experiences, which come with unique opportunities and unique perspectives and unique worldviews. And I need to learn how to use those to be a blessing and a benefit to others. Uh, it is a long process, but it's a daily process that you just need to be committed to. Again, get the right people around you, encourage others and uh, be encouraged by others. Uh, that's what the Mighty Oaks Foundation really is. Uh, our program is very much peer-to-peer. Uh, the people who are involved with teaching and training in our program are all graduates of our program. We all have a common background. We can look eyeball to eyeball and say, I know where you are because I've been there. I don't have it all figured out, but I'm moving forward and I want to take you with me. And, and it's very much that it's a daily decision to keep moving forward. Impressive stuff um, to say the least, you know, I, how much, I mean, obviously you draw off your own experience for yeah. mighty Oaks, but I mean, what is it about Mighty Oaks that sort of draws more of your experience to the forefront? You know, like w w when you start talking to more vets and everything, how much more have you peeled back about your own experience that you found? We, what's funny is, so you know, that's an interesting question, man. What a great question. I, I was raised in, in, in church 
and church world and, mm-hmm. and around Christians. And uh, I, you know, I'm very involved in my church now. I'm, I'm thankful for all that. Again, as I mentioned, I pastored. But what you don't find a lot of often in the church is authenticity. It's <laughs> it's very much a uh, a whitewashed version of yourself that you want others to see. Meanwhile, you know, you smile on Sunday, you do this stuff on Sunday. Meanwhile, you're a disaster at home, and you know, you're involved in stuff that you'd be embarrassed for anyone to know. One of the the most important things I have learned working with veterans, you know, we're a faith-based organization. So that starts with the premise that God created you. That means there's purpose and design that doesn't end when you experience some traumatic event in your life. So let's figure out how to address the trauma, deal with the trauma, but continue to move forward into the person you were created to be, right? That's very basic, but, but a big part of that is you have to be authentic. You have to be real. You have to be honest. And so then veterans and those in the first responders community would push back and say, well, no one understands me. Uh, I can't be honest and transparent and authentic. That's why we, Mighty Oaks, we create an environment where everyone in the room has a similar background to you. We jump up and down on the <laughs> what we call the rule of confidentiality. Uh, it's kind of the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? What happens in this program stays in this program which means you can be entirely vulnerable and entirely honest, but we lead with that. So when we teach classes, when we uh, do whatever, it's always based on our own story. So we'll teach a principle, right? Character. We'll teach about leadership. We'll teach about these things, but it's, it's from the position of this is my story as it relates to this topic. And I'm going to be very transparent and very honest. And what that means is sharing the, you know, the highs is fine. Military guys like to get together and talk about how awesome they were. Uh, That's fine, but that's not helpful to move forward. And so that is the time where we talk about, you know, then I came home and I screamed at my kids all the time. I was throwing things all the time. And then I'd go back to the church and counsel couples on how to have a good marriage. Um, (laughs) I was a complete disaster. And then I'd get up and I I'd preach a sermon on Sunday morning and tell people how to live a good life and that God loves them and then go home and be a complete wreck again. That my wife was thinking about leaving me with our kids, even though I was telling people how you know they needed to whatever with their families. Having those conversations, I didn't even know really how to do that until I started doing the work that we're doing and understanding you have to lead with authenticity and honesty and transparency that doesn't mean you need to throw your, you know, your junk on the street for everybody everywhere to see, but you need right. to have environments where you can be around other people that you can be absolutely honest with. And it's only as you are honest and transparent and you voice those things and you get that stuff that's running around in your head out into the open that you're able actually to really process it, to put it in its right place and to know, look, it's okay, man. Like, yeah, that happened. And that's really, really crazy, but you're not the only one it's ever happened to. You're not the only one who's ever behaved this way on the other side of it. And there is a path forward if you're willing to engage with it. So yeah, man, I, I, you know, that's everything. I mean, being honest and transparent, it's everything. And I don't expect everyone to sit on a podcast and and talk about how horrible they were to their kids and, you know, uh, but, but you need to have an environment where you can do that. Um, That is helpful and uplifting where people can hear that and go, all right, well, how do we move forward from here? And uh, if you're unwilling to be transparent, I, this is, if I could point out one issue in the veteran community that drives me absolutely insane, it's that one is we all like to hide behind and we can, because we live in a great country that loves veterans. And I'm thankful for that, but we can hide behind our service and most people will just leave us alone after that. So we never have to deal with anything. 
We never have to talk about anything honestly. We never have to be transparent. And if you decide you're going to live in a world where you stand behind this facade of how awesome you were in the military, then you never will get better. You never will move forward. Um, you're just going to be where you are, and, and that's going to have to be okay. Yeah, and again, that's a that's a it's kind of a bad place to be. Um, it's a terrible considered. place to be. It's a terrible place to be. <laughs> I mean, I, I think in general, when we when we go through this process of trying to correct ourselves, um, the hard part is is we fall back on so many habits that have been ingrained in us. Yeah. And for yeah. for people, even if you've only been in the military for four years, depending on your experience, you know, there is a certain amount of um, behaviors that are so ingrained in you yeah. Um, yeah. that they are, they are very hard to break. And again, unfortunately we conflate a lot of these behaviors with success, right? Because it's what made us successful in the time in, in, in our time in the military. And, and without them, you know, we, we see failure. And unfortunately for anybody who's ever put on a uniform, especially in combat failure is quote, not an option. Mm. So uh, it's not something that we're willing to rely on or admit that we failed. And we have allowed, you know, Things that were not our own fault to happen to us. I mean, combat, again, there's, there's nothing in, in combat that's anybody's specific fault. Right. I mean, other than maybe the people who chose to send us, they are not having the the, the, the gumption enough to, to allow us the bandwidth to do the job that we are trained to do. Um, it's hard to fight a war when political things yeah. are tying your hands behind your back, but that's a different conversation for a different day. All we can say is, is that, you know, uh, our path to normalcy and stability um, is, is not an easy one. Uh, and, right. and, it, and it takes a village to do it. And the more that we can share, as you do with Mighty Oaks, the more that we can have conversations, ones like you and I are having, hopefully there's more people willing to come forward with it all and say, yeah, okay, I'm yeah. feeling the same way. Yep. Man, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it takes a lot of people. And again, you just made a great point. We could, we could talk about this all day. And I won't, I won't push you to do that, but, but you made a great point. We don't control everything. We don't make the decision to go or not go. We don't make the decision to, you know, do so much of what we do. And yet we allow the the trauma of the moment or the, the difficulty of the moment to attach those external decisions, the things we had no control over to our identity. And, and that's a big part of being transparent. It's talking about how you feel and what you think and, and why you think that way. Um, so that you can clear away a lot of that. We we take on ourselves so much responsibility. This is, you know, even with this area of survivor's guilt, we could talk about where I'm taking on myself the responsibility for the death of someone that I care about that I had no responsibility for. Even if I made a mistake and that caused something tragic to happen, the fact that I was in that place, that all of these events lined up, I had no control over any of those things. And detaching what we can control from what we can't, the decisions we made from the decisions we did not, accepting responsibility for what we did, dealing with what wasn't right or whatever, and understanding we can move forward um, is so important. Um, so important. Yeah. What, what do you hope for Mighty Oaks going forward? We have, uh, since 2012, we've had 4,700, I believe, uh, students come through one of our week-long programs. We have a week week-long programs at one of five locations across the country. Um, we're at a point where we'll have about a thousand students a year in the next several years. So uh, our growth is exponential, you know, over 20 million veterans in the United States, whatever the number is, I know it changes a lot, but uh, veterans in the United States. So a lot of folks who, who can uh, benefit from what we do, uh, working with the first responder community a lot. 
So continuing to bring folks into our programs, uh, we have the opportunity as well to speak to thousands and thousands of active duty service members. Um, we estimate we've spoken to uh, over 300,000 people through conferences and you know just different opportunities. So uh, when we look down the road for Mighty Oaks, it's, it's doing more of the same. Um, it's figuring out how to uh, allow more folks to be a part of what we do. We don't charge anything for the program. And we even cover the cost of travel. We've got some great donors that help us do that. So it, it truly is making it available to as many folks as possible and then helping them uh, get to a place where they can spend a week dealing with some of these issues. And uh, very grateful for what has happened and, and uh, thankful for the position we're in and, and the ability to continue doing this work. Uh, is there anything that in the course of doing this that you've you've sort of we're surprised to learn about people who come through Mighty Oaks. Is there anything that sort of stands out to you about, you know, um, a story or, or somebody has said something that you sort of hadn't dealt with before? Is there anything like that? I mean, some of these things are so similar, um, but yet vastly different in ways that we haven't bothered to account for. I think that we have been doing this for so long now that, and I, I say this a lot, actually, is there's nothing we're going, going to deal with during the next program, the next session that we haven't dealt with before. Uh, everything from, you know, extreme broken homes and relationships to substance abuse and, um, you know, multiple deployments over more than 20 years um, to, uh, you know, a guy who did one deployment and, you know, something horrible happened. We've had, um uh, general officers and, you know, privates attend our program. So um, I think we've seen just about everything. I, I think probably oddly, the one thing that has been interesting and maybe surprising is how common everyone's background is. We have had Vietnam veterans and one Korean war veteran, several Vietnam veterans, one Korean war veteran. And then again, as I mentioned, um, you know, all ranks from general officer to privates attend the program. And when you peel back the layers of what it is to be human and what it is to struggle and what it is to have dealt with trauma. We are not that different and it may look different. It may manifest itself differently from one person to another, but it is not that different. And that to me has been actually a really encouraging, um, very hopeful thing to see because you could sit down with, with anyone who's dealing with whatever, but the answer is the same. Acknowledge what happened. Understand that you were created for a purpose. Learn how to move forward in, in light of that purpose. If there's stuff you need to deal with, relationship issues, substance stuff, whatever it is, we can deal with those one at a time, but we need to put the pieces in place that can help you do that. And the process is exactly the same for every single person. And that's been a, a really cool thing to see over the years is, you know, we're just we're just not that different. It, it, it's funny, even even me coming from a military world and working with veterans, there was a time where there were some people who had served in the military that because of their service, you, you kind of stay away from them, right? Or I, I would assume they were a certain way because of what they had done or uh, their, their bio, so to speak. Um, but what I've learned is you can get past that really quick and we're all just kind of pretty much the same and uh, trying to move forward together. So it's, it's super cool. And, and I think, you know, honestly, that's what makes podcasts like yours just so awesome is it's it's people from different backgrounds and and a diversity of voices and experiences but if you could draw a through line you know like what connects us all um 
it's not that different. And we have the opportunity to really be a community, which is what I love about the veteran community. Well, you mentioned that community. Was, uh, the next question I was going to ask you was, you know, how much of Mighty Oaks, um, for lack of a better way to phrase it, just sort of fills that need of that time where you wanted so badly to be back with your Marines yeah. when they were in combat. Now it's that arm-in-arm, brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister, brother-and-sister, arm-in-arm sort of veteran uh, camaraderie that's that's unlike anything you'll find anywhere yeah. on earth. 100%. Um, that camaraderie is unlike anything you'll find anywhere on earth. And particularly for the combat veteran, you, you can't even explain what that's like. And so a big struggle for a lot of people coming out of the military is that loss of brotherhood, that loss of connection. And again, we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. That's a specific thing and has specific symptoms. But a lot of what we attach to PTSD um, is is identity. It's uh, a loss of that brotherhood and a loss of that connection. So coming back into that environment, and, and we do a great job uh, through our programs of creating kind of that environment again, um, it onboards people so fast. It's crazy because we all come in. Uh, we probably haven't been in a an environment like this in a long time. And now you're around other people who have some of the same crazy stories and have done some of the same dumb stuff you've done and and who really get it. And, and I think that's what creates the opportunity for transparency, as we've mentioned as well, is you're around people who get it. And, you know, it's it's like being on a deployment or being out in the field with uh, with your Marines and just hearing the stupid stories and being real honest with each other and just saying stuff and it's okay. Well, now you're back in that environment, but it's an environment that can be helpful to to moving you forward. So, yeah, that's that's so important and um, so needed. Honestly, it's you lose it. You feel like you lost a person when you lose that environment. How much uh, of of that pastor life is still in you at this point? Yeah, it's a lot. It's a, it's a surprising amount, to be honest with you. Um, so I do have the opportunity still to, to speak a lot. And uh, a lot of that's in churches. So I preach and, you know, teach and do that. And that's, that's great. But helping uh, hurting people, broken people understand God and understand who God created them to be and understand how to move forward in light of that. Uh, that's pastoring. It's care. And I have the opportunity to do that a lot now. And so it's, it really is funny. There was a moment where I thought I was leaving the Marine Corps to go into ministry. And then when I pastored a church, it was actually in the San Francisco area. So all connections to the military were lost. And I thought, well, I guess I'm just doing ministry and there will be no military. And now um, it's very much a, a bringing of the two worlds together. And I, 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 the line has become very blurry for me. And I, I feel like it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of one and the same now. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm very grateful for, for that in my life and having landed in that place. They they need some God in San Francisco right now. That city is, uh, <laughs> well, I'm not there not anymore, too, but you are. Not, exactly I was going right. to say you might want to go back up there for a little bit and spread <laughs> some of the love. It's uh, it's it seems to be coming apart at the seams, uh, and that's not a political statement. It's just a fact. It's a, it, that is it's a messy. Fact. It is that messy is up there. Uh, but again, you know, nonetheless, uh, we use a little more God everywhere in our lives. That's for darn sure. I know yeah. I'm guilty. Sure. Guilty. Like, listen, uh, 
as a Catholic, it comes with a great side of guilt. So every time you don't have God in your life, you're uh, you're reminded of of of, of how to go running back uh, and, and looking for the Lord. Anyway, I, I, I joke, but we digress. Look, I mean, again, the, the website, by the way, MightyOaksPrograms.org. Uh, is where you guys can go. There's a calendar there. There's all the events that you guys have. You can sign yeah. up. Um, a lot of them in Texas and California. Um, and you even have women's programs out there, which is great. Uh, because for our, for our women's audience out there, and we always get more requests for more females. So if you know any veteran females, send them my way. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, the, the women's programs out there. Because, again, that's a whole different level of trauma. Um, and, and we've, we've peeled back that onion a little bit here. I wish we had, could peel it back more, yep. but you know, it's a different level of trauma, not only through combat, but just through being a woman in the, in the military. Unfortunately, it, uh, it brought a whole different level of, of trauma to, to the situation. Yeah. And it, it, you know, even the response from male to female, and I know we're, you know, trying to blur the lines of, you know, male sure. and female these days, yeah. but <laughs> the, the response just because of, you know, how we were created is very different as well. So, um, yeah, just as a quick aside, when we started our women's program, um, we we tried to just simply take our men's program and just duplicate it. And like, uh, you guys just take this, you know, it's women teaching it, of course, and they have, you know, the military experience and first responders and stuff. But you, you take this and just do the same thing. And they looked at it and they're like, yeah, this will never work. And I'm like, no, 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 just just try it. Just do it. It'll be fine. And it was a complete disaster. So they completely rewrote the curriculum and, and pointed it toward women. And um, that's our, our fastest, most in-demand program is, is for women. And I'm, I'm very, again, grateful for the opportunity to serve those folks. Again, mightyoaksprograms.org. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much uh, for, for sharing your story with us. Uh, again, the books are called March or Die. And um, slipping, help me out with the other one here. Leadership by Design. Leadership, Leadership by, by Design. design. Thank yep. you very much. Uh, I can get them everywhere, I assume, Amazon, normal bookstores, right. everything else. Okay, yep. make sure you check it out. Uh, and you can be followed on social media where you guys have uh, social media accounts you want to give out. Yeah, you can find us anywhere on social media. For, for me specifically, I have a, a website that kind of captures all that. It's just my name, jeremystolliker.com. And that has podcasts I'm involved with, uh, all the social media stuff, links back to Mighty Oaks and all our YouTube stuff. And it, it's all there. So uh, Mighty Oaks for programs. But if you want to follow my stuff, go to just my name, jeremystolliker.com. Great stuff as always. Uh, we appreciate it, man. Listen, thanks for sharing your story. Uh, thanks for your candor and your honesty. And uh, Mighty Oaks, continued success. Uh, you know, save one veteran a day, and we're, that's one less we have to worry about, right? I mean, it's, if that's the goal, then, then, then we're doing okay. Any more than that is certainly a cherry on top. But a continued yeah. success with Mighty Oaks, and thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your story with us, brother. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Jeremy Stalnecker, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.